Hello, listeners. Or is it just listener? Well, either way, it's a very warm welcome to the Crash Podcast, which is mostly all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich, and a Royal College of Radiologists former Röntgen professor from back in 2020. We hope that you enjoyed the restart of the podcast last episode featuring the RCR Clinical Radiology Research Day panel discussion from Julie Cox, Jonathan Rodriguez and Jamie Franklin, who shared lots of insights into how to make the best research opportunities from their consultant positions. So what are we in for this episode? Well, I'm very excited to be talking to another intrepid guest who has agreed to line themselves up for the full crash experience. I can see all the safety gear is strapped on, so before the lights change and I get in trouble by forgetting whether he's an Arsenal or Tottenham fan, it's a great pleasure to introduce Tristan Barrett, University Lecturer in the Department of Radiology at the University of Cambridge, Honorary Consultant Radiologist at Adam Brooks Hospital, of course also in Cambridge, and as you may well have guessed, the Royal College of Radiologists 2022 Röntgen Professor. Welcome Tristan. Hi Tom, thank you for having me, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Now which is it, Tottenham or Arsenal? Well, I, I, I was thinking that wouldn't come up, um, but <laughs> right on the spot. I, I didn't want to have anyone prejudice against me. Uh, for my sins, it's Tottenham and for 35 plus years, and, and that's probably why I'm such a cynical personality. Right. Well, so that's why all our hybrid listeners are now just tuning out, but never mind. We can handle that. Look, thank you so much for joining us and huge congratulations on the award. We're looking forward to hearing all about your plans for the professorship program in a moment. But why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today? By this stage, your career is quite a long story, right? I started medical school back in 1996, which is quite worrying. It's, it's 25 plus years and you know, <laughs> there's students that are qualifying as doctors that weren't even born when I started. So it, it does uh, make you think back where you've been. But I, uh, I, I started training in London, St. George's Hospital. Um, I did BSc during my, my training. I qualified in 2002. Um, I then did uh, postgraduate jobs around South London where I trained. So St. Helier's, St. George's. Um, so one year as a house officer, two years as an SHO. Uh, and then ended up going more by serendipity actually across the pond to NIH Bethesda, so just outside Washington, D.C. So I was doing two years of research in the molecular imaging program with, with Pete Choiki. Um, that was mainly bench work uh, and, and then a, a little bit of clinical work, which actually ironically was prostate imaging, which is what I've ended up doing. It wasn't always the grand plan. Um, but uh, yeah, that was sort of 17 years ago and, and I'm still doing it now. Uh, I then came back, I did my training at, uh, at Cambridge, Adamwood's Hospital within the east of England. Uh, so five years there, I did a, a fellowship, year six fellowship in Toronto as a clinical fellowship. And then I've been back in uh, Adam Brooks in the university department since 2013 as a, a university lecturer. I, I think you had, you had questioned that. I still sort of am a university lecturer, but there's been a, a nomenclature change in the back. Yeah, yeah, let's get this straight. I'm questioning it, not because I doubt your credentials, but because of the fact that uh, the University of Cambridge is doing sort of shuffling the pack on what's being called what in terms of positions, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So so, so without really changing position, I, I, I think I've, I've, I've actually changed or I'm in the process of changing titles uh, at least once this year, possibly another time sometime next year but but yes sort of sort of currently a university lecturer 
um, maybe soon an associate professor because of a nomenclature change rather than a promotion. Oh, thanks. That's really comprehensive. And what's kind of uh, funny for, for me personally, and of course not for our listeners at all, though, is that my timeline is um, exactly alongside yours, 96, 2002. These are the dates that all stick in my head as when I went off to university and qualified, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, also, we had some crossover in um, towards the end of our training, didn't we, around 2009 and 10 and when I was hanging around in Cambridge. So, yeah, it's lovely to have you back on and to find more in depth about what you have been up to. Right. Well, rules, relaxations, redactions or otherwise, there are no exemptions for our guests. And when it comes to this next part of the podcast, and that, of course, is the crash test. Now, if you haven't caught up with the crash test before, please go back and listen to previous episodes because it's been really fun to get under the skin and into the minds of our guests as we rub away at the sheen of their innocent facade. But right, Tristan, it's just you today. I hope you had a good helping of honesty juice and shameless cereal this morning. So it's time to pick your number from the uber technical crash test grid, which now seems to be curling at the edges slightly, but I think it's just still fit for purpose. Which number would you like to pick first? Okay, so this is a bit I've been dreading. Um... <laughs> Everyone does. Let's go with number four. I used to wear number four playing football. Let's go with number four. Is there a pizza topping that you just can't stand? Everyone's got one. Don't, I don't like olives in general. So that's usually the, the thing that I take off. I mean, I, I don't mind most things that go on pizza. And then if, if the one that happens have olives, then I'm then busy at the side picking them off. Yeah. <laughs> So there it is. It's in the crossover zone. Yeah, gotcha. You know, most people don't like anchovies, right? But I, but I, I do quite like those. And even the controversy of pineapple on a pizza. I also don't mind that. So well, yeah. I had a side bet that it might be pineapple, but there we go. Olives. OK, interesting. So what's your next number then? Uh, 16. What's the earliest thing that you can remember from your life? I, I remember when I was very young saying to my parents that I remembered being at a house in Bishop Stortford and sitting on the back step. But that's my only memory of that is my memory of my memory saying it. Um, so I, I don't know if that's quite true. I, I do remember around the age of four playing with a He-Man toy when my parents had gone out to a Mabel. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's about the right era. Yeah, you didn't swallow any of it, did you? Like his sword or something. <laughs> I guess if I remember it, that I was probably aware enough not to, to swallow things things like yeah, that. All right, okay, good. At least, that's, at least that's why it wasn't memorable. Okay, what's the next one? Let's go number nine. Okay, we're getting topical. What's your favourite Greek letter? So which virus do I think is going to be named next? Well, you I, can go there if you want. I can't say that's something I've ever thought of. No, I'm fine. My, my kids always say to me, what's my favourite colour? And that's it. I really don't have a favourite colour, which is probably blue, actually. You stumped me. Let's go for alpha. Why not? Gotcha. Okay, uh, next one. Number seven, hopefully it's lucky. Do aliens exist? Yes or no? Oh, well, I guess it depends on your definition of alien, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think there probably are some microbes somewhere on either Mars or maybe Io, one of those moons that has some sort of water content to it. But aliens, like they are in the movies, green and slimy, or even the Dr. Spock variety the Vulcans and the Klingons I don't think there's anything like that no okay all right what's your next one number 11 okay here we go this is the one how many times did you fail your driving test I was expecting this I thought you just asked everyone that anyway every time I listen to an episode somebody has to answer that no I haven't failed my driving test I passed first time at the age of 17 and actually I also passed uh, for the first time a second time when I was in the states so I had to get driving license being out there for two years so so yeah I'm actually two for two with driving tests uh, the 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 one in the states was was interesting it wasn't as hard as ours you, you essentially just drive around a car park it's a ve very strange experience but 
with, with their exam, it's based more on a logbook of, of hours driving. So actually, you, don't, you can bypass that because you can drive there on your international driving license. And then you can drive around the car park for about 10 minutes and then you, you pass the test. So it's much well, easier to do that than being... That, that's, that's ridiculous. So you shoot right to the top of the table, um, you know, untouchable, unless we get someone with three countries. And anyway, the US test sounds a little bit what my wife had to do for her driving test in Wisbeach. So, uh, you know, maybe there are some parallels. <laughs> okay, look, we can actually go on a bit of an extended run because it is just you. So you're not off the hook just yet. Why don't we keep going? Okay, let's go with number six. What's the best piece of luck you've ever had? As you unfortunately brought up, I'm a Tottenham fan, so I, I don't see myself as a lucky person. And, and I'm one of these people that always remembers the, the, the bad luck that occurs rather than the good luck. So, I, uh, well, I, I mean, I kind of mentioned I, I ended up going to uh, to NIH in, in Bethesda. It was quite serendipitous. I mean, actually, the reason was Sandra, my now wife, it was a scientist and had a job out there. But it, it was very lucky for me that I ended up um, getting a position with, with Pete Choiki, who was who was setting up his molecular imaging program at exactly the time that I wanted mm. to go out there and had some funding. So that was very much being in the right place at the right yeah. time. And that was very lucky. Well, I think we've come across these career synchronicities and we think they're luck, but you do have to a lot of an extent work to get that luck and for the things to, to slot into place. Uh, that's a much better story than the $50 note I found in a urinal in Oz. <laughs> that's what inspired that question as I thought back to that. Okay, look, uh, next one. Number three. Have you got any famous ancestors? No, I, I don't think so. Maybe I could do Danny Dyer and go on the TV show and find out some relative that was famous at some point, but I, not that I can think of. One, one that almost happened, I... Um, my father's family from Hoth, uh, just north of Dublin, is a fishing village. So Sandra, when, soon after we met, we went, we went over to Ireland, we've been dating maybe a year, and, um, and we go to what is quite a small fish, fishing village, and we went down to the harbour area, and there was this huge tanker with Barrett oil written on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she said is there something you haven't been telling me said, is there something somebody hasn't been telling me because this is quite a small village and there's barra oil there so how could we not be related to these people but unfortunately we're not related to those people so you're not swimming in oil <laughs> never mind but she married you anyway all worked yeah. out well go on then let's do one more go number 14 oh yeah now this is nice and topical what's your favorite element in the periodic table Maybe barium. Let's say barium. Barium. Because <laughs> I don't have to do any barium studies anymore. Now I can see it as a long lost friend that I don't have to do battle with. Yeah, so for any non-radiology listeners or anyone actually that's vaguely modern, barium would be the contrast that we would do to do enema examinations. And, you know, it would be the, the day where you did not wear your smart shoes. Uh, I, ha I would have had you down for gallinium. But, uh, but there we go. You're, an, you're old school. Excellent. Look, uh, thanks ever so much for doing the crash test, uh, Tristan. Really appreciate it. All right. So look, let's get to the main meat of the discussion. The reason why you've given up your time to talk to us today, Tristan. Your predecessor in the Röntgen professorship role, Joe Jacob, neatly summed up what the, the actual professorship was all about in episode seven. But could you give us some insight into what the professorship means to you and also why you applied for it? Uh, well, I, I may need to listen back to Joe then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually, I, I spoke to Joe uh, just last week um, and, and I think that was very helpful to, to get sort of an insight into the role, what it involves on a day-to-day -day basis and, 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 and beyond just the, what, what is listed on the RCR website. So that, it was really helpful to have a chat with Joe and to get his experiences. Obviously, 
uh, very difficult times with having to do virtual visits for him, uh, but he's uh, he's made the most of that and, and done a great job. Um, but yeah, aside from that, I, I guess the classical interview question: Why here? Why now? Um, mm -hmm. why, why why have you applied? Uh, so it, it's something that was probably always on my radar because within our training program, we have had over the years visits from the Ronkin professors um, and, and even former colleagues. So Owen Arthurs, who's now down at Great Ormond Street, um, he was a Ronkin professor four or five years ago. Uh, and then, of course, yourself, Tom. So uh, as you mentioned, we, we did cross paths as, as trainees. Um, and then I was aware that you were the, the professor and you came to, to speak at one of our meetings as well. So it's, it's something that in the background has been on my radar is, is something that's there. Um, probably one thing that, that got my interest was uh, when the, the Radiant stuff started out. So the, the two of us were at the, the, the nascent sort of meetings of that with mm. Barbara um, and, and Vicky. And, and that was, uh, I think, sort of uh, springtime 2019. Uh, so that's Margaret Hall Craggs, who's been leading the Radiant Development, and Vicky Goh, who's the chair of the academic committee, yeah, at yeah. the college, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was very interesting to see trainees there that obviously had an appetite for being involved in research, but didn't really have the opportunities in their own programs, in some cases, or probably didn't know the options that were available to them, or just simply how to get started. You know, the inertia, uh, and perhaps, you know, depending on the program you're in or, or the people around you, um, you just didn't have the, the ability to get going in the first place. So it, this seems like, I mean, that, that's a great initiative uh, and a really good way to engage trainees and get them involved. Uh, and the Ronkin Professorship also gives a way to reach out to trainees and to you know, make them aware of the different options that would be the pros and cons. I mean, it's not all, you know, roses in the academic light. So what, what an academic career in radiology involves, whether you want to do that as a full-time career or whether you just want to be involved in research as uh, an NHS clinical um, consultant um, and the benefits of research and, and you know, how to do it um, and, how, uh, and, and how to get there. And also having sort of recently taken over, well, it's, time goes quick, it's about four years now, as the academic training uh, program director in, in, in Cambridge, I, I sort of, I, I'm a supervisor and mentor for our ACFs and clinical lecturers. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm even more involved in, in that sort of development stage of, uh, of, of, of trainees through their research career. So it seemed like a very good way to, to, to engage with that. And, and, and I guess the other thing at the back of my mind is this, there's sort of a ticking clock that I've got a finite period of time that I can apply for this um, because it, it, it's open to academic radiologists and to NHS uh, consultant radiologists, but you can't be at professor level. And not that I was particularly looking to become professor soon or go for promotion, but actually with that nomenclature change that we, we, we talked about, it's now only one step of promotion for me rather than yeah. being two yeah, steps. Yeah, exactly. So what's in a word? Yeah, you've been just uh, name change and then you're suddenly no longer eligible. Yeah, so you snuck in under the so, under so, the wire. So it, it, there is a sort of a ticking clock by the time that I, I, I may well make myself ineligible. Yeah. So I've, I've probably got a few years left. Yeah, I reckon those criteria might have to be slightly adjusted given the fact that there's this kind of homogenization or attempted levelling off of all these kind of different associate professors, assistant professors. I still don't understand all of it. 
it, but at least there's some efforts to standardize. So you hinted at the fact that Joe and myself have, had a sort of very uh, a COVID embattled experience in terms of not being able to go out and visit. I was lucky to be able to do two around this time, actually, uh, Bath, Bristol and Sheffield, where I was also able to enjoy a few local beers on the trip. That was something I was really looking forward to that got scuppered. But tell me, what are the plans for your visits? Where are you thinking of going? How do you think COVID and Omicron might affect your plans? Are you going to actually travel out? Or are you also going to look at a virtual program? And who are you going to be engaging with? That's a great question that, that I don't necessarily mm. know the answer to myself at the moment. I mean, oh, really? That's the, the big variable in the mix is COVID and, and, and where we will be. You know, I, I think to a certain extent, Joe did have a little bit of an advantage that he could do more visits uh, because when there isn't the travel element, um, you, you can potentially go to more centres. I think he even did two in one day, which you, you, know, you mm. wouldn't be able to do when, when you have to have travel and, and overnight stay or whatever. So I guess that was one slight advantage. He probably cleared a bit of a backlog of uh, programmes that were due a visit. Um, mm. So he's, he's, he's done a good job for me that in that regard. <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's it, obviously in-person is definitely preferable. Uh, I think we all... Uh, have experienced over the last, you know, almost two years now, um, you know, being very enthusiastic about trying to do online teaching and, you know, peak, peaks and troughs and trying to find a way that works. But I, I think as a, as a, you know, somebody leading uh, either a tutorial or a lecturer and as a participant, it's not quite the same when it's online. And it's, it's really difficult, particularly with small group teaching, to get that engagement even if the cameras are on, it's, it's still it's still much harder than it is in person. So I, I definitely prefer it to be in person. <laughs> I, I like the way you're insinuating yeah. that if the cameras are off, they may well be checking uh, the Australian maybe, Open maybe. results. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, we trust we trust our trainees trust, and trust, our trust. colleagues. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the eye contest, the, the verbal clues, which which you know you, with the camera on, yes, you can get, but it's not the same as being in person and, and a small a small thumbnail at the top of the screen. Um, so, uh, so definitely in person is better. I, 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 it's interesting that, as you say, you managed to do some early in the year because mm. traditionally this was the first half of the year that it was done. Mm. So for me, it was, uh, you know, at the time of appointment, I was told it's the second half of the year. And the, the emails have gone out to the different training programs and they've said that it would be after April this year. So, so it's, it's definitely towards the end of the year rather than the start of the year. So that gives us yeah. potentially a bit more time for uh, hopefully things to get, get into a better situation and you know hopefully uh, physical visits will be possible uh, you know you, you have to when you apply uh, give an outline of what you want to do so I, I've sort of given an outline that could be adapted mm -hmm. either way um, so I've got sort of small group work that I think should still work in a, in a virtual environment but also it's, it's probably preferable in, in physical environment. And then, you know, it, it sort of research career talk is what you typically give at the end, which mm -hmm. a lecture is a lecture. So that could be delivered online as well. So I think ho hopefully it will work I, I, either way, but I prefer it to be physical meetings. And, and in terms of where I'm going, um, I'm sort of waiting on, on the guys at the RCR to get back to me. I, I think as okay. far as I understand the processes, that they go out expressions of interest to the different training programs, um, and then there's sort of a list is made in reverse order. The ones that have had yep. a longer time since they've had a visit, they, they're, they're at the top of the list. And then I guess I try and do as many as I can. Um, minimum is five, uh, you know, depending on when we get started and, and, and how much time there is left in the year. Maybe I can do a few more than that and uh, sort of two, two in close proximity to each other. Um, and, you know, geographically, I could do them on consecutive days. So, so we'll see, yeah. see what the list comes out as. 
Oh, no, that's fantastic. I really hope you get the opportunity to do that because it was really great to go out and meet um, the trainees and to meet a whole range of in individuals and see, you know, and find out about what their aspirations were with research, but also to see them get stuck in on the day, even if it wasn't something that you knew that they were going to necessarily want to pursue for the rest of their career. It was still nice to be, to be, able, to be able to go out and, and, and meet people. In fact, I miss that a lot just in general. And I think what you're saying resonates across lots of different aspects of professional life. And I'm glad that you've got some time for it to settle so that you might be able to defer that decision a bit. Okay, look, let's, let's just dive back a little bit because you told us in the introduction that, you know, medical school at St. George's, that's right. Tell us then a little bit more about your early years in um, medicine as a student and trainee and how and when you came to be drawn to research, because it is different now. There's a much more condensed period between, you know, ending medical school and picking up specialty training. And perhaps when you're having to make your career decisions, we've explored this before, it needs to be earlier and earlier in your career pathway. So, you know, I think for you and me, we had a bit of protracted junior training, but when it was it for you that research really became something that you felt was meaningful and something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I was at St. George's uh, Medical School. Interesting, at the time I was there, all the London schools were merging and they had been for a few years before and, uh, and, and still were when I started. So when I, when I started, I think there were still about, there were 10 or 11 um, medical schools around London. And by the time I got to my third year, it was down to five, which is what it is now. Um, so that certainly made it harder from a sporting point of view because they all became much stronger as they merged together. So, so what sport was this? Was it was it I, football? I, I, I played football. Yeah, so we didn't. We, unfortunately, we didn't win the uh, the university hospitals cup. Yeah, for, for um, our for our listeners, uh, Tristan yeah. has the footballers build. He wasn't uh, you know stacking up in the front row and the rugby fifteen. It's definitely football. <laughs> it that, yeah, uh, that, so that was probably my first interaction. I did a BSc year at uh, at St George's intercalated year. So. Uh, probably about a third of the year ends up doing an integrated year, so so uh, it's it's not the majority. So I, uh, I I had that opportunity at medical. School. That was a taster of some research, was it? Yeah. So I mean, it's going back a long way. So during that year, you you picked various modules that you you studied, did exams in, and you had a research project which. I did something related to immunology and uh, cytokines. I can't quite remember all the details. Alarm bells ringing. Uh, yeah, if uh, somebody asked me that in an interview, I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to, to piece together what, what the project was. Yeah, so that was my first introduction. My, my father actually was a, uh, a research scientist. So it was sort of something that in the back mm. of my mind, I thought that might be an interesting thing to do. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I talked to him about that and what the different options were. And, and I, it, was, it was something nagging at the back of my mind, but, but you're right. I think now it's, it's very hard to get the opportunity. It wasn't necessarily easy at that point. And, and the way it worked out for me was just, um, was, was more serendipity that the opportunity arose and, and more or less a natural break in what our careers were at that time. So you, you did a year as a house officer, and then you did, uh, if you wanted to go into radiology, you, you did probably on average two years in SHO, which is what I had done. And then there was that mm. break before going from SHO to registrar in radiology. Yes, because back then they required um, membership exams, Just and but we then sort of moved, transitioned around the time of the, the foundation programs coming in, didn't we? So they had to kind yeah. of step back from that and yeah, say, so well, we can't do that anymore. So we were just in the old program. And um, so it was a natural breath between that. And of course, in radiology, you don't do junior jobs. So you, you almost go in day, day one knowing pretty much zero um 
uh, or he's certainly not expected to know much. So there was a natural career break for me to do that. And then that's, as I say, with NIH, it, it sort of fell into place. Now, I always wanted to do radiology and, and I don't quite know. I remember I was listening to, to, to you talking to Joe on the podcast and he was saying the reason he became a chest radiologist was somebody kept saying you're going to be a chest radiologist. And, and it was it was almost that that it was me that was saying it. I, I somehow I got this idea I was going to do radiology. And then everyone asked me, what are you going to do? And I just keep saying radiology. And, and mm. then it sort of it kept going around. And, I said, and at one stage, I had to sort of take a step back and think, do I only want to do radiology? Because I keep saying I want to do radiology. <laughs> um, and actually, a, a, a big thing about going to NIH at that time was also doing some clinical work and doing some clinical reporting sessions. And then I realized that actually I really did want to do radiology. Yeah, I think it is quite, it's quite possible to convince yourself um, that you, you're going to predestine to a certain career. And I was a bit like that with the choice about medicine. I don't regret it. So did, you, you had a chance to be a bit circumspect about it. You were just about to tell us about your experience in the US. Yeah, and uh, I remember a colleague um, saying to me, uh, you know, at that time, a lot of people went down a surgical route or a, a medical route and then decided mm. actually didn't really like it in the case of radiology. And saying to me, you're the only career radiologist I know. <laughs> set out from the start wanting to do radiology. So in that era, I guess it was a little bit unusual, but it, it's very different now. Um, and, and yeah, so so then I, I I mean I really enjoyed my time in NIH. Um, uh, had a, a, a great program there. Was uh, working with you know, some incredibly clever people, but. At the same time, I realized, you know, if I want to do this, I needed to actually be a radiologist to do the clinical research. Well, let's so, take the opportunity to explore this a little bit more, because I really wanted to ask you about it. What kind of research work were you doing there and how did you set that up? As, as I say, I, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time in terms of being appointed to it. The majority of my work was bench work. So it was um, mouse models and we were doing optical imaging. Uh, so uh, these were in orthotopic uh, tumors, and then we'd, we'd inject um, uh, agents, Herceptin uh, linked, uh, and, and knock out uh, versions. And we'd, we'd then see that we, we, we could show uptake in the tumors. Uh, so we did that in um, so subcutaneous tumors. We did it in uh, lung tumors. Um, so, and, and probably we, uh, we had, I had maybe eight, nine publications from that related wow. to that work. Would you say were you using any clinical imaging techniques that are relevant to what you then go on to learn in the radiology training and use subsequently? So, 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 so not, not specifically in terms of optical imaging. I think there's a, there, there was a lot of potential there, but of course the difficulty with optical imaging is the depth of penetration. Um, so then you, it's okay with mice because you don't have to go so deep and particularly for, for lung tumors, but of course you upscale that to a human then um, you know, it, it's harder to do, you know, possibly laparoscopic techniques could, could, could utilize that. It hasn't taken off so much as it, as it initially seemed it would. I mean, some of the interesting work we did there was with uh, sort of lymphatic drainage and to try to, to identify different nodes beyond the sentinel node as you inject it uh, in and, and to, to see where the agents go. Um, I think that paper, I, I was a mid-author on that paper, though, and I think it's still one of my most cited papers in the 700s. It's a really, really clever design um, from um, uh, Hishitaka Kobayashi, who's an incredible mind uh, that, that is still at NIH. Uh, he's one of these guys that are really inspiring because you would say, oh, X experiment didn't work. And you just go to him and say, oh, you know, a bit downhearted, say, oh, this didn't work. And then he just sort of, he'd stand there for a few seconds, think about it, and then come up with about five different reasons why it might not have worked and actually what you could do next. 
to, to, to try and, and make it work. So incredible. You could just do that thinking on the spot. I mean, I'm, I'm That's awesome. I, I still have to do things, you know, I have to be very methodical and really think through and it take, takes a lot of brain power to get to that, to, 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 to those, uh, to, to that stage. So, so yeah, so that was a lot of it, but then I, I, I also had the opportunity to do some clinical reading sessions. So NIH is a slightly strange thing. It's a huge campus. And then in the middle of it, it has building 10, which is the clinical center. And, you know, you have sort of day cases, uh, oncology, surgery, uh, chemotherapy, things like that. But beyond that, and they have an ITU for, for overnight things, but beyond that, patients would go out to another hospital. So if they need more than, you know, sort of two days, then they go across the road to suburban general, it's called, and they go across there. So you, you weren't really sort of a, a, a mini hospital, um, but, but obviously you, you had, you know, imaging follow-up and outpatient studies done, oncology patients. So I did sit on clinical reporting sessions um, and then our, our clinical uh, research was two patients on a Friday morning uh, for prostate imaging. And at that stage, we, we were convinced that uh, spectroscopy was the way forward. Um, and, you know, we kept, kept trying to do it, kept trying to do it. Subsequently. So is that magnetic resonance spectroscopy where you just look at the small molecule chains and their prevalence in relation to metabolism? Yeah, so so um, you're looking at, um, at choline to creatinine ratio with, with prostate right. was, was the thing that yeah, so choline goes up as a membrane marker in, in malignancy. And because there's background noise, you look at it as a ratio and, and to, to, to avoid having to, to worry about the scale. Uh, so we were convinced that was the way forward. And if that wasn't the way forward, then DC was the way forward. So we were doing all these different pharmacodynamic modeling. And then I remember this clearly, and that was actually quite a, a, an interesting thing with, uh, with research, where you get these almost light bulb moments or these, these changing moments where I went to ISMRM, it was in Seattle in 2006, so May 2006. And I was, I was delighted, you know, it's a 27, 28 year old, right? I get a, get a free conference, first conference, and it's all the way across the other side of the country. And I've been to Seattle, it's been great. <laughs> uh, but my boss said, I'm not going, so I need you to take notes. So I'm like, oh no. So that being very studious, I did go to every single relevant lecture, right? So I uh, <laughs> didn't actually see that much of Seattle. I think I saw a baseball game one evening. Um, so I did make all these notes and I made this sort of PowerPoint presentation. And it just became apparent that at that stage, it was just diffusion-weighted imaging. Everyone was presenting on mm. diffusion-weighted imaging and how great it was. So I went back and reported. And, and I think we, we had been doing some, some diffusion-weighted imaging as one of the sort of the throwaway sequences. And then that come that upcoming Friday, we're like, okay, let's have a look at this diffusion. I'm like, actually, maybe there's something in this. This this really does show it very well. <laughs> so it was, it, it was one of those kind of moments. Is you sort of look back uh, and, and think it was incredible to be there at that time where that was sort of developing. Um, so so that I mean, in and around all those different stories and then you know the bench work, the clinical work. That that's sort of what really piqued my interest in research. And 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 I probably would have come back to doing research in the UK, but it, but it was very difficult keeping up 3,000 miles away with, I think Joe mentioned it as well, it was that very specific time of the MTAS uh, mm. training that came in, came and went almost as soon as it went. But for those that caught up in it, it wasn't particularly pleasant. They, they, they changed the way uh, all the applications uh, were done. Uh, then it was a bit of a mess. And then they, uh, then they decided actually to be fair to everyone, they give everyone an interview. 
And then what they did was they, you know, they interviewed people with the same questions and everyone knew the, the, what the questions were and what the answers were. So, and they're like, oh yeah, maybe we did get this wrong because all the guys that went second, all, all the candidates that went second were so much better than the ones that were first. And that's because they knew the answers, right? <laughs> um, so, so I was in the first cohort. So I, I, I'd actually originally uh, uh, put London down as first choice and Cambridge as second choice. Um, and then, uh, because I'd done all my training in London. Um, but it actually worked out really well going to Cambridge. So I, it was all I could do really to keep my head above water and to follow all the changes that were very dynamically happening with the uh, with the application process that I didn't even know about the um, integrated academic training that had just started. So I think that, that had come as an idea in 2005. Um, 2006 was the first year that that had run and 2007, the year that I started, it would have been the second year of it, but I, but I just had no no awareness of that, and and I, and I probably would have applied for those programs yeah. had I known they existed. Um, so then, uh, as a registrar, you know, we touched upon this already. It is difficult to get involved in research, and I think particularly in radiology, where you're essentially pretty much learning a new specialty from scratch, uh, and and you keep getting bombarded with exams as well. I think probably a little bit less so now um, with the two. A exam being all in one, um, but when, when when it was split into six, it was almost you know every three four months you've got another exam coming up, uh, and you've barely just got over the first one where you've got to start thinking about revising for the next one again. So it does consume a lot of your training, all those things in together, and it, it's quite difficult to get involved in research projects. So I did manage to tick over with uh, a few projects here and there, some retrospective studies, but also some prospective work that was going on in, in gyne imaging and, and in prostate. Um, and then uh, I finished, uh, I also I did an ESU, ESOR um, scholarship in Sloan Kettering so, in New York. Is that you, run by the um, European Society of Radiology? Yes, yeah, That's yeah, a, yeah. yeah, okay. There's several of these schemes around and we, we, we have them in, in Admirals. We host uh, trainees as well from around Europe. So that was the first one that was outside Europe. Uh, there's, there's a few more now as well. Um, so that was a great opportunity to, to go and work there. And that was, uh, that was quite research focused, actually. The idea was that you got involved in research projects was going on. Again, a finite period of three to four months is actually quite difficult to, to start and finish projects. But at least you sort of got a, an awareness of what they were doing and new techniques. Um, so so I, I did that during my training. And then after finishing my, the program in 2012, I did the, the fellowship uh, I mentioned in Toronto. So that was a clinical fellowship in abdominal imaging, but actually they, they do have quite a good provision for uh, research there. They, you, have, you have a day a week as a, a trainee dedicated for research, and they have quite good backup in terms of a, a statistician that's appointed to the radiology department, medical stats person, um, and you know support for going for uh, retrospective ethics and things like that. So I was able to get involved in a couple of research projects there as well. And then I came back uh, here in 2013, and actually initially as a effectively a locum appointment. Um, so uh, this was uh, somebody else in the department had external funding. So there was a there was an overlap period of six months, which then actually became 12 months, which was which was really good because then that allowed me the the, the time to to actually be an academic and to see that is this the career that I want to do? Yes, it is. Um, it's uh, interesting you say be an academic because your track record up to that point is is very academic. Yeah, it, well, it is. But but, it, but but apart from that sort of career break, it, it had been difficult to balance that, as I say, as a trainee in having those opportunities. And, and I think if you go back in time and you ask me that that person then as a senior trainee, what would you want to you would see your career? I, I would see myself as more clinical 
with a research interest. So I think probably my ideal split would have been 70% clinical, 30% academic, um, which can't make you an academic, right? So, so, so and, and that's the thing that I was thinking about, you know, could I be uh, an NHS consultant that maybe gets external funding from the MRC or wherever that I can get a couple of PAs a week that are dedicated research, which I can top up with some SPA time and I can get to that 70-30 split. So that was, that was my thinking as, as a trainee. Um, the, the clinical was slightly outweighing the academic, but still having the interest in, uh, in, in having uh, some research element. Uh, and then having that opportunity to be what was, at least on paper, 50-50, um, was, was the, the thing that actually really cemented it, that that's what I wanted to do as a career. I think the difficulty is, it, if, some, if you split something 50-50, it probably doesn't add up to 100, right? You know, at best it's going to be 60, 60 equals 100. And probably over time that's increased and the clinical workload uh, has increased. And maybe I've got to that 70% clinical now. It's just 70% clinical, 70% academic, 140% of the time. Yeah, I think that's a very real problem that people that are in the position that you were and currently do face. And it's interesting that you said, well, maybe I can build up on some time that I already have with additional funding. And actually, that is um, a recognized model right now. So, for example, with the MRC CARP, I forget what CARP stands for. And there's also like sort of research capability funding around where people in their consultant roles who have shown success or have had historic research achievements, whether it be a high degree or a, a string of papers, they can apply for that time. So there is some recognition that it is still a career path that can achieve research output. It's just that it would have to be quite a different one. So what is it about the role that you're in now? Because as a university lecturer, associate professor, that, that grade, that's a different position um, to Joe, for example, and a different position to, to me. What kind of things do you have to do in that role? And um, what kind of responsibilities do you have? And wh- how does that facilitate the research that you want to do? Uh, so, so, so your touch of time is a big factor. Um, so, so, you know, it, it is 50% academic, at least on paper. Um, uh, you know, academia isn't nine to five, Monday to Friday, you, you know, when, when you've got deadlines coming up for grant applications or you know, presentations or, or papers or whatever it might be, then clearly you have to work outside those hours and, and, and make it work. Um, but uh, but you do have more dedicated time for research. I mean, my, my position is a permanent position. I mean, I actually have a probation period, but, you know, once you get through that, then essentially that's, that's a job to the age of 67. And, and you don't necessarily uh, need to um, uh, apply for any funding beyond that, certainly not salary funding. I mean, you might not be encouraged to stay if you don't get any grants at all, but you, you don't at least try and cover your own salary as well with, with grants. But, but at least in theory, you don't have that. So you have that security uh, that you, you have a, a, a permanent position and you have that dedicated time to do research. Um, I mean, there's, there's other advantages to, to being within the university. You know, you have access to a lot of papers that you wouldn't do when you've got a, a, a at uh, ac.uk uh, email address, then you can you, you know this get subscriptions to the papers. So you get the papers that are behind the firewalls that other people can't. So there's other advantages to that as well. And, and also we, we we touched on my role where I work with it as part of the academic training. So that's a lot of what I do. I think the problem you get as you get more senior, and this isn't just for academics, but it, but it does come uh, as part of the work with academia is, is is other options that are kind of that are not clinical 
that are not academic, that are this sort of third box that is sort of, you know, policy, um, maybe college work with the RCR, things with NICE, um, guidelines, special interest groups, um, you know, which, which actually is, is difficult because it's, it, it's joking aside from the 50-50 or 70-70 split, it, it's another 10 to 20% worth of time. Yes. It probably isn't recompensated in terms of, you know, SPA. No, and these are, these are really important things because you, you're becoming an expert, whether you're clinical or academic, and you're being drawn towards those types of roles being sought after for the expertise that you have and kind of, you know, not obliged to, to deliver on that, but it's something that you feel that you should perhaps be contributing to. And that just encroaches on the rest of your time. And I, I wonder how well we recognize that within our job planning. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it, it, I mean, you, you do, sometimes you get professional day leave to go for, for committee meetings or whatever, but that, that's the finite number of days that you would get a year. And, and the reality is you, you can't really afford to, uh, uh, to, to lose that many days. You know, some things you do on the clinical side, uh, like I do, we, we do the MDT cover, it's, it's actually prospective cover. So, you know, we, we, there, there's two main urology MDTs that, 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 that we do between three of us. So that's, you know, that's, so that's 34 weeks of the year. Now, if you're there for 42 weeks of the year with, with leave and other things, then actually the majority of the time it's rare to be there on a Monday and I'm not doing one or the other of the MPTs. But then you factor in things like this, then actually when you're not there for 42 weeks, you're still doing the 34 weeks of that. So it sort of, it condenses the time, the time you are there, you're even busier with, with the mm. work. So it does become tricky. I mean, I, I think the other thing is that there is, there's kind of a there's kind of a blurring of the lines as well when you're a clinical researcher and i think even more so in radiology than other specialties so you know to go to the other extreme you know i, I know somebody's respiratory uh, respiratory physician who, who does lab work so, so when he's in the lab he's in the lab i mean it's clearly not mm. doing clinical work right and when he's on the wards seeing patients or in the clinic seeing patients that's clearly clinical work. It, there's a very clear divide. It's very black and white that you're doing one or the other. Whereas in when you're doing clinical research, that becomes a little bit more blurry. And particularly in radiology, where we don't necessarily see patients face-to-face -face all the time, uh, you know, outside of ultrasound or, or procedures or fluoro, um, you know, CT and MR, we're quite remote from patients. So actually th those lines get blurred a bit. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's, there's an advantage in that. I think being good on the clinical side and, and, and seeing what the problems are on the clinical side help you to develop research questions and to, to look for things that you can recruit or improve on the clinical side. But you sort of, you start to lose those, those boundaries and it becomes quite difficult to know what, what's mm. what, what are times and, uh, and where the time is allotted to. So, so time is, it, it, it is, a, is a massive issue for, for, for everyone, but it's, you know, when you try, try and try juggle a few different roles, it becomes even harder. Um, but I think, I think, I think really, you know, when it comes, and I try to say this to the, the trainees coming through as well, I think being good clinically as a, an academic radiologist is absolutely key. You, you have to be good clinically. Uh, and Adrian Dixon, who was uh, in our department, you know, well as, as well, former uh, Professor Adrian Dixon, who was head of our department for uh, many years, he, he would always say that, you know, it, it, you, you've got to be as good as your clinical colleagues in the area you're working, if not better. Because you've got to get the respect of your colleagues, and and if you are away for some of the time, or perceived to be away for some of the time, when you are there, you've really got to sort of shift the workload and 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 gain that respect. And I think even more so is when you're trying to recruit into trials, because we don't have that direct access to patients. 
you need the buy-in from your uh, clinical colleagues in the other specialties. So they need to be able to see you and see that you're uh, doing a good job and your opinion they can rely on because then they'll go the extra mile to recruit patients for you for mm. imaging studies that isn't necessarily a benefit to, to them as clinicians. So they, you, you, you know, because you don't have that direct access to patients, you really need that clinical uh, base to touch and, and to, to, to be able to help uh, recruit for your imaging studies. Can I just touch then on um, perhaps another advantage maybe, or you can tell me about being in the university department position. Is there a good, is, is it having that infrastructure um, closer at hand? So, you know, maybe for building a team or for, you know, the administrative side of things, do you find that in, in your role that that is something which is facilitated and that, you know, Cambridge is going to be as an international, you know, world leading centre of research, a well-oiled machine? And can you take advantage of that? Uh, yeah, you, you like to think so. Um, you know, things don't aren't always as easy in whatever <laughs> environment. I mean, certainly from an infrastructure point of view, uh, there's, there's no question. Um, you know, we, we have... Uh, last count, I think six MRs. We, we're updating three of them this year. We're getting second three Tesla. You know, it's going to be top of range uh, scanner. We've got the latest software um, updates, so, so that all helps coils as well. Um, and you know, we've got uh, two clinical hyperpolarizers to do uh, hyperpolarized carbon thirteen imaging. So that's we, we do that across various oncology. Uh, tumor types and you know, prostate, we've, we've, we've recently published on that just last week in Nature Communications. And you, you, know, you, you simply don't have that opportunity at the majority of centers because when it comes to hyperpolarized MR, we are the only center that has two clinical hyperpolarizers in the world. Um, and you know, there's only about 12, 13 sites worldwide that, that can do that. So you, you know, clearly that brings opportunities that you don't have at most centers. So there's, there's no question about that. Um, in terms of uh, uh, support, it, it's difficult because we, we are still quite a small department in the University Department of Radiology. So we have um, seven PIs um, and we've grown the number of PIs. We've grown the number of postdoc uh, students and PhD students, but we haven't really grown the admin support in that same time. So, you know, we're, we're probably um, over the last 10 years since Fiona Gilbert's been head of the department, we've probably grown maybe about three times in size in terms of students and, 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 and PIs, but we haven't in sync grown the admin department. So that has actually become a bit of a problem. What, what, what has also happened is we've now recently gone to a, what's called a cluster uh, a group where we, we link in with some of the other small research groups, so orthopedics, pediatrics, um, uh, gynecology and, and surgery and we we then kind of appalling the resources of um of, of secretarial support um uh, finance uh and you know people deal with grants so, so i think that has helped a little bit but the, the difficulty is then then because they're they're not always within the department you can't just you know go go around the corner and and, and ask for help with this and think it was the last minute things so you do have to be more organized to get those things done but so, so that has sort of uh, has, has helped recently but you you don't always uh, you know that that's one of the problems is if you, you expand up and you grow you don't always have all the other things that you need to support that growth
So it's been very rude of me not to ask the question that every researcher likes to be asked because they can talk for hours on it. But tell me exactly what your research is about right now. What kind of things are you looking at, um, investigating? What kind of directions are you going, if you can share? Uh, yeah, so uh, so on the clinical side, I, I do general body imaging, but particularly GU. So I'm involved in the urology FDTs. And then from a research point of view, my, my focus really is prostate. Uh, I mean, I've, I've done some renal work, some bladder work. Uh, but prostate is my focus, prostate imaging. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I've done a lot of work with, with MR and different techniques of MR and novel sort of MR sequences, um, ketosis imaging, uh, magnetization transfer imaging. Um, and then we've, we've looked at particularly sort of the ex-nuclei um, side of things. So sodium imaging. Um, so uh, previously did some work on that. That's probably not quite as uh, promising as we'd hoped, but I think, you know, the big thing we, we are working on now is hyperpolarized MR. So we've got a, a joint grant with UCL. UCL is a big center for the prostate on, on the radiology side and on the, on the clinical side. Uh, and that's going to be looking at different aspects of, of prostate cancer. So first diagnosis, so to target biopsies with hyperpolarized MR, um, treatment response, so in patients undergoing androgen deprivation therapy pre and post to see if you can see that differential response beyond the standard care imaging, which we know is not very good in that context. And in the context of active surveillance, where we can better select patients that go on to monitoring rather than uh, what we call deferred treatment, not immediate treatment, and also then whether we can predict the time point at which you need to make that treatment switch. So a lot is around that. And then, of course, because we're living in the world we're living in, uh, it's it's around sort of big data and AI. So um, I've got a, a grant recently, which is uh, from Prostate Cancer UK, which is looking at uh, how you can assess image quality with AI, because image quality is really key to prostate MR, where you have uh, issues with pelvic metalwork, hip replacements, um, gas within the rectum, which causes a lot of artifacts on the diffusion weighted imaging, patient motion, spasm in the rectum. So it really key for us is, is the image quality. It's, it's a huge topic in the field. So, so that's looking at aspects of image quality. Um, and we're hoping to do more work in terms of um, AI with uh, uh, looking at how you can use that for detection. So to supplement the, the, the specialist read, which I think will be particularly key for the smaller centers that have less experience, that you could use that supplementary AI read. So that's something we're probably looking to do in the future. Uh, and also some work with, uh, with, with risk modeling and using AI to do that. So we feed in imaging data with clinical data and you can uh, risk predict for patients uh, what outcomes would be to inform better informed decision mm. baseline, um, what, what treatment options are. Because in prostate, there's often equipoise between actually doing nothing with active surveillance or doing surgery or doing radiotherapy. So better to inform that decision-making process. Um, and then uh, also, uh, looking at uh, sort of uh, radiomic models to see if that can help in those really hard areas with, with prostate, which I've mentioned, where the standard care imaging doesn't do so well. So the ones where, you know, the post-treatment glands, and there are potentially options that you can do salvage focal therapy. So can you better determine where a lesion is? So it's, it's sort of, I, I guess the main, the, the two main strands are MR novel sequences and plus or minus X nuclei imaging, and then kind of what we can do with, with AI and big data in, in, in different cohorts within prostate. So you in Cambridge have got, you know, fantastic facilities. You mentioned high, the hyperpolarized um, carbon units, and you'll have a huge wealth of AI scientists. 
it seems like a fantastic position to power that research forward. But um, what about the, the scalability of that work? Because as you said, not everywhere has these facilities. How do you think about in the context of your research saying, well, this is going to be someone that somewhere with perhaps far less sophisticated um, imaging can have available? Because ultimately you do want to have the widest possible impact with your research output. When you start out, there's a degree of low hanging fruit, right? Because you, you, you're starting a new, when it comes to something like hypothyroidism, it's a completely new technique, right? So there's lots of low hanging fruit in terms of can you do it? What can you show? What can you not show? But you do have to have line of sight of that longer term thing of, of where you would be. Now, I mean, interestingly, most departments will have an MR scanner, right? Probably more than one, a, a lot of departments. Not every department has a PET scanner. So, you know, you could argue the other way that actually when it comes to molecular imaging, you've got a better position developing an MR technique than you are a PET technique with a, with a, with a tracer. Hang on, I can just hear your colleagues bashing down the door beside you, your PET yeah, colleagues from the probably. nuclear medicine department. But it's more centralised. So you, you don't, you, you're not going to have a PET in every single hospital. So you, you, could, you could argue that. I, I think something like hypothyroidism, it, it's very technically difficult to do. So I don't think that's realistic every hospital that has an MR scanner is going to be doing hyperpolarized MR. Um, so what you need to think about then is what are the niche areas within whichever tumor type that you could use it in. So for prostate, you know, we do more than 100 uh, clinical studies a month. So, you know, 1300 plus a year. Um, so you can't do it in 1300 patients. What's realistic? What's realistic is maybe doing, you know, one to two a week. So maybe up to 100 a year at the maximum. So then you need to find out actually what's the niche area within that where you can make a difference to, to, to management decisions and treatments in a, a, a smaller group of patients. So you have to think about that. And, and that's sort of the post-treatment gland when it comes to prostate is probably an area uh, that it could be. Renal, small renal mass, you know, being able to, without having to do a biopsy, better differentiate what the small renal mass is if it's going to be you know benign spectrum oncocytoma or indolent spectrum rcc that you can leave well alone um, or you can confidently leave alone if you can baseline characterize that then that's a really good position to be in and that's a, again that's a, that's a smaller group of patients but not that many go on for renal biopsy so can you do this instead of the renal biopsy so it has to be a manageable group of patients so something like that i accept a technique like that is, is unlikely to be that widespread. But MR is a technique, you know, people didn't think about that when it first started. But, you know, there's improvements in technology, costs started to come down. So it, it could be more widespread, but probably not every single MR department, every uh, scanner in every department. AI, I, I think, you know, that there is more potential with that because if we're talking about, you know, software plugins really that could, that could work within a PAC system, then that's very possible to use. Uh, risk calculators are used all the time as well. They, they can uh, live in, in a web space and, and be accessible. So, you know, I, I think those things are, are, are definitely more widely applicable. Um, some of the novel MR techniques, you know, things like diffusion was at one stage a novel technique, right? And the beauty of that is there's no exogenous injection and it's, it's a very quick um, te technique you can do it in two, two and a half, three minutes, uh, depending on how you set up your PWI. But but that started out as a research sequence, right? And that's widely applicable. So it's not yeah. impossible that these, these, these new MR techniques can be rolled out uh, as in widespread use.
Well, let's bring the trainees back into the discussion. I think we're coming towards the end of um, what's been really fascinating insights into your personal and your research history. Let's bring the trainees in and say, well, um, what kind of opportunities do you see in your position with your research and your research program and research output for involving trainees and how might they be able to get involved with someone such as yourself? Yeah, so it's difficult. I, I think it's that sort of inertia and it needs to buy in on both, both sides. Uh, and, and it can be difficult if you haven't had that background in research. So as we, as we touched upon, it, it's increasingly difficult to get that experience before you go into radiology with quite an abbreviated postgraduate career where you make the choice and you've probably just done two years as a, an FY1, FY2. Uh, I mean, some people do MD, PhDs um, uh, as a way to get that research experience or intercalated years. But it is very difficult to get that research experience. I mean, it's difficult. It's different if you're an ACF or a clinical lecturer because you have some dedicated research time. So the, the ACFs, the academic clinical fellows, have 25% time protected for research in the first three years. And then the clinical lecturers, who are typically at a more senior level, um, so typically post-2B, have 50%. And with a PhD time. as well, the idea is that yeah, you'll have done and, and, something between if you hadn't already done it beforehand. Yeah, so as an ACF, you don't have to have a PhD, but as a CL, you, you do have to have a PhD. So at that stage, you're then you're, you're in a much better position to be able to start to, to lead on research uh, at, at that more senior level. But if you haven't done that, those, it, it's tricky. And it's actually very difficult to get in at the AC, ACF level unless you've mm. taken some time out to do research beforehand. Because the, the way it's worked at Cambridge, most of our ACFs already have a PhD because the way the, the marking scheme, in order to make it objective, you have to go through this checklist and you get a certain number of points for having done a higher degree in research or having to done, you know, having got a first or a two one or whatever. And then you get marks for having done oral presentations. Then you get marks for having had publications. And of course, if mm. you've got a PhD, you will have all those things as well. So you can't penalize people for having those fantastic so, achievements. So, so although the ACF was sort of set up as to try and gain the experience to work towards a higher research degree and to maybe take that on in parallel or take a break within your training to, to, to do that, um, actually, the reality is a lot of our ACFs already have PhDs by the time they come in. Um, so so, so it's, it's tricky. And, and for the, the trainee that's not an ACF or, or a CL, um, I think it, it's even harder because you don't have that dedicated research time and you may not have had the experience in research projects. So it's, it, it's hard for you to get going. It's perhaps a bit intimidating to, to ask some of the academics or the NHS uh, consultants uh, to, to get involved in projects and, and potentially it's work on their side as well. So it's that initial inertia of getting over things. So I think having a more formalized way of doing that is helpful. Um, I, I did have some experience that with the, the, the programs I was involved in in North America. Actually, I think they do that very well. Uh, I think, you know, having acknowledged within the, the latest RCR curriculum that research is more prominent and, and it does play a role uh, within the curriculum. I think hopefully will help things as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of this, this carrot or stick approach, right? So, you know, the carrot is, is maybe getting something to make your CV look better um, or doing the RCR certificate, which I think is a great initiative for, for non-ACFs to, to do that and to get a feel for what the components of a research career are. Um, and, and then the stick approach is saying, well, if you don't do this, then you're not going to pass your ARCP. You're not going to be able to see mm. And I don't think it's quite, it's, it's moved a little bit more towards it, but it's not that, it's not a real, it's not a very big stick. 
Um, and no. my, my experience from uh, from that North American programs was it, it's sort of a bit of both. It's carrot sticks, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> so from from four and five year olds uh, parties, those little carrot sticks you used to get. Um, so it, it's it's very well set up. So in um, uh, in in Sloan Kettering, what they would do is they would get all the PIs, and you know that's the effective the clinical ones and the research ones to come up with a project idea, a retrospective project idea. And you would they would list them all and then and retrospective because that's more immediately implemented. Yes. So I think that's that's a distinction not everyone appreciates as well because you know there's this prospective research which looks very intimidating and in a short period of time is is potentially not that doable because you've got to get um, ethical approval, you've got to write a protocol, you've got to get funding for it, you've got to recruit patients, and then, you know, that all takes time, and then at that stage, look to analyze the data and write up, whereas actually with retrospective studies, you almost jump right towards the end. So yes, you do need ethical approval, but usually it's quite an abbreviated ethics versus um, the full ethics that you need for a prospective study. And then you, you're almost immediately at the analysis stage and the writing up stage. That's far more manageable. And that's manageable in certainly as in a five-year training program. Uh, it's probably manageable to do one as a junior trainee where you're not differentiated and one as a senior trainee where you know what specialist area you want to work in. And I think you could have the two together. You could have the junior mentoring, being mentored by the senior working on a project. So, so that's what they, they do. They, 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 they provide a list of these. The fellows that start for a year, that are there for a year, they essentially read through this and they put a first, second, third choice. And it's like an extended matching scheme. So within the first month of being there, you're matched to a PI with a project. You work out a plan for the rest of the year, how are you going to do that? Uh, and as I say, they're, they're good support with, with statisticians. Getting ethics is much easier there anyway. They have a, a fast track uh, way of doing uh, retrospective ethics and they have people that can help you to write that uh, and, and it's you know you've got the support in place and you've got a, a pipeline of how to do it and it, it's it's quite structured um, so that uh, and in theory that's more carrot but they, they do want you to produce something out of it so there's a bit of stick comes into it when I was in Toronto doing the fellowship there as I say you do get a day a week for research so you you have the provision of time straight away and the, the onus is on you to find a, a, a PI who will do a project with you and what that project will be. But you have three different research meetings during the year, which gives you some of the basics of research, uh, training, stats, different things like that, and also where you can develop your project ideas. And there is the stick approach to that as well, that you have to, by the end of the fellowship, to pass the fellowship, have a, a produced a piece of work that's either acceptable as a, a, a conference abstract or as a paper. So there's a bit of stick in there as well, but there's a lot of, you know, encouragement and, and the process in place to get that. So by the end of the first month, you'll have met with a, a PI, you'll have developed a project, and then you have the rest of the time to do that. So I, I think we, we could try to replicate elements of that within our system and have it more formalized. Because, you know, I have 100 ideas for retrospective studies, I can't always get to do them. And, you know, I, I and I can't supervise all our trainees um, but if they express an interest and we try to work something out and we see what's manageable and what what they want from it is you know is this just a, you know if your fellow is it just so you can get a consultant job or are you interested in research do you want something that's quicker or do you want something that's more in depth um, and it's doable so I, I have this list and actually what I do with that list is I then as they progress it, it moves up to the next level where it's 
Uh, so these are lists of potential ideas. These are the lists of projects people are working on at the moment. And then on the next tab is the ones that were previously done and now published. And I have the, the date at which the idea came up, the date the, uh, the project was started, the date that it was published. So they can see, well, actually, you know, there's a list of, you know, 25, yeah. 30 studies. And actually, they do get published. They get published yeah. in, in, in this sort of time frame. So and that makes that achievement very tangible and understandable. And you can see how a trainee might fit into that. And they can see themselves and that your output is successful. And that's really very interesting. And I think we've got a lot to learn from how this kind of inspiration and engagement occurs in positions from outside of the UK. And in fact, that has set me on to thinking that we're hoping to speak to individuals that are current UK academics, but have worked in international academic systems to just to hear some more excellent ideas, just like the ones that you've shared with us. So that's been a really good thing for thinking ahead. So Tristan, you have mentioned the ACF, the Academic Clinical Fellows and the CLs, the clinical lecturers, when they historically started in 2005 and the kind of time splits they have and the kind of achievements they could look to get through during their training but there are some challenges out there aren't there right now for individuals that want to take up these posts you said that they're competitive but in your mind what kind of things are going on around these and what do we have to be on the lookout for uh, yeah so so it's so it is quite challenging challenging for us as programs uh, i mean people may not be fully aware of that integrated academic uh, training program but it the idea is it, it starts off from uh, immediately post medical school. So uh, at the medical school level, you can apply to do academic foundation program positions. So within that two years of uh, FY1, FY2, you do four month blocks. And one of those blocks within, it will actually be in your second year. So you've got a bit of grounding in clinical practice will be an academic block for four months. So you can, and you can do that within the, there's groups of specialties. Um, so radiology is considered one of the, it's called under option. Um, so we, we have in our program had a few AFPs over the years that have got involved in projects. Again, as we said, four months is, is, is a short time and you have to be realistic and you, you have to plan for that. So usually the, the AFPs are in contact with the supervisor beforehand and you can maybe get do some background work so they can hit the ground running and try to get something out of that four month block. So ideally within that framework, you would start off as an AFP. That gives you the, the you know, the CV, the, the, the grounding to then apply for an ACF position, as we touched upon. And then as a senior trainee, you can potentially go on to a CL position. And then the ACFs, as we said, they would have 25% of their time set aside for teaching, for, for, for research, for the first three years of their training. And then the CLs have 50%. Now, with, with the ACFs, in other specialties, they tend to do them in blocks. So if, if you think about three, three years being 36 months, 25% is nine months. So they either do a set nine month block or they tend to do three month blocks within each of the years. Or in some cases, you know, it'll be at the end of year one, the start of year two. So actually it's a six month block and then there'll be a further three month block in year three. Now, historically, we haven't really done that in radiology. We've, we've had a couple of trainees in our program going back in time, 10 plus years, who did that. And actually, it became quite difficult because you then sort of, you, you do your first year, you take that block of time away, you're struggling a little bit keeping up with where the exam dates are, but actually you regress a lot. You, you know, your ultrasound skills, your fluoroscopy skills as it used to be back then. You know, I, I can take a year out not doing any CTMR. Yeah, they're not cemented at that stage, uh, are they? They're not, they're not ingrained. Exactly. So, so it becomes very difficult. So actually the way we've done it is 
it's actually called day release which is <laughs> <laughs> from can... nursery or prison oy, oy. exactly exactly so it's called day release so that's where you do a, a day a week um for for uh, uh, you know for each of the first three years the reality is you don't typically take a day a week at the very start because you're still finding your feet and you're trying to get going with projects so when it gets to to, to year three some day some weeks you're taking two days but still being able to you know do enough to pass that block so you have to be realistic and it can't be every every week but occasionally you can take the two days that's a good run through if you can do that you don't have to do that and, and obviously i've described a career that didn't do that and even though it was potentially available for me uh, i didn't do that so it's not an absolute but that is a, that's a nice run through training if you if you're aware of that and you do that from the start the difficulty is there aren't so many of those places available and uh, and nihr that funds these positions they're cutting back all the time on the positions that are available. So in radiology, we used to pretty much get guaranteed an ACF every year, and particularly as we were seen as a specialty in need. So, you know, when it first started off, the first few years of that, we, we always had an ACF. And then it got to the stage where there were cutbacks. So actually what happened was we went into competition with other specialties. So it would be typically just one other specialty. So occasionally, sometimes we get it, sometimes we wouldn't. Then more recently, we've just been told, well, actually this year, you're not going to have an ACF at all because you're not even going to be in competition because of the cutbacks in, in numbers. Um, and then this last year just gone, we were in competition with uh, with hematology and oncology. So it becomes increasingly difficult to get ACF. And uh, th those are specialties that are quite well known for yes. having people that do PhDs, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> they often have very strong candidates, so it's, it's difficult for us. So mm. in parallel to that stream, they're, they're called formula posts. So the, the, this, the NIHR has a formula to create these formula posts, and it's based on research output and, and various other factors at the university level. So they give those places to the university. Then the university decides how they divide that up between all their different specialties. And, and that's the one we've typically gone for. But what NIHR is moving away is number one, everything's being cut back a bit. They're moving towards going more theme-based and again, the, the, the hospital, the university can bid for those uh, if a particular theme they think is strong. And then if they get awarded that theme-based bid, then you come back and you compete with the specialties that were in the theme-based bid. Now that doesn't typically work that well for us in radiology because we're quite cross-cutting in themes. So we're not that specialized. And particularly if you think about the time point at which trainees are thinking to go into radiology, they haven't really done the radiology and they're not going to be that sub-specialized in a theme. So an example was a couple of years ago, it was, it was mooted that we'd be put, putting forward into um, dementia and aging. And actually we were gonna be against neuropsychiatry and neurology. And clearly candidates in those areas are going to be much stronger in that area than somebody who wants to do radiology. Um, now there are some themes that maybe fit a bit better because they change these year on year. So there's one that's platform sciences and bioinformatics. So you can see how AI, big data can come into that. But some of the others really aren't for radiology. So, you know, there's, there's, there's acute care is one, um, uh, which clearly we're not going to be involved in that. Mental health, difficult for radiology to be involved in that. Epidemiology and public health, you know, a bit of a stretch. So, so most of the themes don't really fit us that well. And, and mm. you know, when, when you go into them as well, you're going to be against specialties that are potentially stronger. So, so I think that, that's, a, that's a big problem for the ACF program. And, and you do need this stream of ACFs to be able to get competitive for CL posts. So you don't have a pipeline of ACFs coming through, 
then your CL post, you're, you're, you're less likely yeah, so, to fill. So, yeah, your... let's talk about this because you talked about the chance of going in, but what about transitioning from ACF into CL and what problems have we got there and what kind of solutions or, or rather should we be doing to try and fill CL posts and getting people interested at that step up stage? So as you mentioned, you do need a PhD to go in at the CL levels. The idea is a pyramid system that you, you know, you, you would have an ACF every year, but you, you don't have as many CLs. So you, you know, in our department, we, we've never had more than two. Um, sometimes it's, it, it's down to one. Uh, but then that's sort of a, an ideal thing that you've got, you know, if you had an ACF every year, you'd have had, you, you'd have your first three years and then year four as well. And you've potentially got that either competition or you've got, you know, one of the ACFs will want to do it, the other but maybe don't want to go into research career. So you've got people that can feed into being a, a CL. And, and, you know, we're not the only pro program that's going to have issues with, with getting ACF posts. So you could say, well, you get somebody external in. But if all the programs are having the same problems, it does become tricky to, to, to fill the CL posts. They can either be Dean refunded at a local level, uh, or again, you can have NIHR ones that are, that are funded nationally. And again, the NIHR ones, they're being cut back year on year and they're in competition. So, you know, we, we will be going for uh, one uh, in March, 2023. And again, we're gonna be in competition. There'll be three, three specialties in competition for that one post. Uh, and depending on what those specialties are and what the candidates are, that may be very challenging. So it's, it, you, you kind of need to really grow the, the academics to, to, to fill those CL posts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the idea would be then you, you, you transition to, uh, to, to an academic radiology career uh, as a pyramid. You know, not all CLs will end, end up in academic uh, positions at the end. And indeed, not all academic positions will have gone through that idealized pathway. But it's, it's a good framework mm -hmm. if, if people can follow that as, to go through so and that's interesting because it's a tricky sell because we're saying from a clinical perspective we need more radiologists and so when you fit, you subscribe to a career as training to be a clinical radiologist you're going to get a job right now and you also have options about what you subspecialize in and you're going to be in demand but then it's a difficult sell to say well this is a pyramid and whether you like it or not you may not get to the next level and i'm just wondering if that puts people yeah. off uh, well, I, I'm not sure that it does because it, there, there is a natural attrition rate because pe people do it and, and they realize it's not for them. And, and actually, it, the, the chips seem to fall in the right places. You know, people that actually don't really fancy doing academic, having done an ACF, then they don't go for the CL post. Those that do, do. And those that have got to the stage of doing the CL, some of them then realize, actually, I don't really want to do this as a, a full time career because they've got that then that 50 50 balance. Right. So they know what what that would entail. And it's, yes, it's different problems at different stages of your career with either on the clinical side or the academic side. Um, so it, it, it tends to work out, I have to say. I mean, from, from my experience of sort of being involved in the program here and, you know, uh, peers at the time that were ACFs years above, year below and, and what they wanted to do in their career and being academics or not being academics. There is this sort of natural attrition rate that it, that it, it seems to work out reasonably well, but you, you do potentially have a bottleneck, as you say, uh, and, and that might happen, you know, from year to year where you, you have, you know, two, two in one year that are really keen on being academics or more, uh, and then you might have a bottleneck. And it might be that you need to go to other schemes uh, to, to look for CL posts there or, or indeed senior positions. But we've expanded, we've expanded our department as well. So, so hopefully there's, there's room for growth. I think we're coming towards 
the end of our discussion. And it's been really fascinating to hear about your time in America, the ideas you brought back from there that maybe ways of inspiring individuals to get involved with research, those advanced MR techniques, uh, your plans for the professorship, of course, and carrot sticks, which I shall have to think about a little bit more. And particularly also ACF posts and your discussion and talking about what we need to do around them. But I always like to ask this at the end of the discussion, especially when we start getting to your kind of position, Tristan, because 10 years is a long time. And I've been looking back at 10 years gone and then starting to reframe maybe medium and long-term plans. And it's all very well to say, well, you know, I'd hoped and here I am and, you know, don't worry, it'll be fine. But where do you think you'll be in 10 years time? And what do you think you'll be getting up to? So it used to be five years, like you say, right? <laughs> Under five years becomes 10 years. Maybe as you get more senior, then you have to cover into the future. No, that's just um, me. That's just me putting something that's actually quite difficult because longer term plans are always less specific. I'm really, you know, putting yeah. you on the spot. I, I mean, uh, five years goes really quickly, doesn't it? I, it, mm. it, it is interesting. If, as you say, if you look back 10 years, where were we, where were you 10 years ago? I mean, I, I think a lot has changed. As I say, I was at a stage there where I was a little bit more clinical than academic um, at that stage of my training in 2011-12. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on the clinical side as well as the research side, things have changed massively in, in the field that I work in, in terms of prostate uh, cancer workup and doing MR before biopsy. We're even thinking about doing MR as a screening test, you know, for, for men with possible prostate cancer, PSMA PET, you know, that didn't exist as a tracer, even, you know, five years ago, that wasn't widely available uh, and certainly hadn't really been used at all 10 years ago. So that, it's, and that's now part of routine clinical practice where we are. So th th those things have changed dramatically on the clinical side. Um, so, so it's difficult to think in the future, will we get, will we get as dramatic changes, um, you know, on the clinical side, on the academic side? For me, um, where would I be? I, I, as we sort of touched upon, it, it, it's essentially kind of a permanent position. So I probably would be in Cambridge in 10 years' time. Yeah. Uh, I guess never say never. Um, other opportunities can come up. Um, Scandals you know, allowing, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe offers come up, maybe things change, maybe whatever. Anything can happen. I, I, I'd probably yeah. say I'd, I'd be in Cambridge in 10 years' time. Um, I, I have a bigger group than I have at the moment. I've got um, two PhD students. I'd, I'd hope to have, you know, probably one per year. So it would be sort of three to four, but also having sort of a, a bigger uh, support group around that. So having, you know, project managers and postdocs um, and maybe, you know, research assistants. So beyond just having the student component to it, so it's a, a, a bigger research group that, that can function. So it, uh, and, and probably have my then my own lab group meetings. I sort of piggyback onto the back of one of the other PIs at, at the moment for, for for those things. So so that's how I'd probably hope to see myself and 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 want to aim towards within that time frame that I've got sort of an independent research group that I'm leading that can be working on different themes and and, and can be coming up with new ideas as well to work on. Um, so yeah, that that that's where I see myself and uh, hopefully getting a better balance of the equilibrium of uh, you know kind of uh, the 70-70 we, we talked about but also the the third yeah. stream of commitments and yeah. the talks and the conferences I, I mean I, I think interestingly actually that there is some good that, that came for all this remote working I think you you do save time on travel with that and I think some of some things will continue to be virtual or hybrid 
The one thing I don't like is, is, is having to record the talks and then wanting it about three or four weeks ahead of time. Mm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, you usually just don't have to think about the talk till the, a couple of days before and you do it on the train down there or the plane uh, over there. Whereas this time you have to think about it before and, and then you have this sort of urge to get it done really well because you can't have any mistakes because you can record it yeah. and edit it. So that, And repeat, yeah, yeah, and again, and again. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be doing with this talk as well, but it's... it's <laughs> oh, no, it's, uh, we're, we're smooth on this one, well-oiled. You, yeah. You've been absolutely fabulous. Uh, in fact, I think you've missed a trick. I thought we were going to come full circle and you say that in 10 years' time that you'll be at White Art Lane watching Tottenham take the Premier title. Now you are in cloud cuckoo. Let's be realistic <laughs> about things here. <laughs> There's the half-empty glass again. Excellent. Okay, so... I think that is just about it for this episode. It's been an enormous pleasure to talk with you, Tristan, and we wish you all the best of luck over the next 10 years and, of course, with the 2022 Röntgen Professorship. I'm sure it will be a huge amount of fun and extremely rewarding for all of those trainees that are going to get to, to meet you, whether virtually or in person. And I'm expecting to see hordes of prostate experts coming through in the next five years because I'm pretty sure I'll be needing to call on their services in the future. And it's probably too much information anyway. As we wrap up, huge thanks, as always, go out to Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for supporting this podcast and also huge thanks as always to sue mercer for her invaluable sound editing show notes will be available at the rcr website now if you have any questions about what we've discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology or research involved there around then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk that's c-o-n-f at rcr.ac.uk don't forget about Radiant, the radiology academic network for trainees, which is fast becoming a powerhouse for trainee opportunities in research. And we will be putting them through the crash experience very shortly too. So watch out for that. Check them out at www.radiantuk.com and get yourself and your training scheme involved. And if you've enjoyed this outing, please tell your colleagues, friends, your students, your pets, your neighbours, everyone, and give us a thumbs up and subscribe. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe.